0: Welcome to a special interview episode of Lococast.net. Rick Harding and Craig Maloney recently got a chance to speak with Greg Grossmeyer. Greg is the leader of the Ubuntu U.S. Michigan Loco. Rick and Craig also talked with Greg about his involvement with the Michigan Loco, as well as Greg's involvement with open data and Creative Commons. We also talked with Greg about copyright and about the governance of Ubuntu.
1: I'm recording here with Lococast.net with a special on-site assignment. With me is the ever-present Craig Maloney. Craig, how are we doing?
0: I'm doing well, thank you. How are you doing?
1: Uh, well, I'm. Or not in the car anymore. That's good. Yes. And we're going to a Python meeting tonight. That's double good. Yes. And yes, I wrote Python is. code today. That was triple good. And I did too. Awesome. It's like quadra, quadraphonic good. And we have with us our fearless Loco leader. 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 The inventor leader. of the Michigan Loco. Um, Greg Grossmeyer, and Greg, we want to chat with you on a whole bunch of stuff because you've actually got your hands on some interesting things as far as open source, uh, open information, mm-hmm. and we brought up your blog post a while ago. We were talking about the whole Banshee canonical. We won't quite call it debacle. Kerfuffle.
2: Kerfuffle. Kerfuffle.
1: That's a, there. You go. Shenanigans. I like that one. <laughs> but, hey, why don't we start with the beginning, right? I mean, because it's kind of cool because I've been around since you came along when you were like, hey, I'm, I'm coming to Michigan, and have you guys started a Loco yet? And we were like, oh, yeah, we, we should definitely that do that. <laughs> yeah, I've heard of that.
2: Yeah, it was really kind of weird because I was still in Minnesota when I decided, hey, I wanted to do this thing with this Loco, and, like, I just started getting into Ubuntu in, like, a, a real sense. And I was moving to Michigan for grad school in the summer of 2007, And I was still in my apartment in Minnesota and was like, well, I'm leaving here in a couple months. So I might as well start some of the infrastructure for this loco team over in Michigan because I didn't see anything that had been started yet over there. Um, At the time, I didn't know about, like, George's kind of failed attempt at something (laughs) in Detroit for a little while. Um, George being Whip Rush slash Jay Crashero on IRC, um, if anybody knows him, probably. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I was over there in, in Minnesota and we... I mean, I just kind of like set the IRC channel and the mailing list and all that kind of stuff. And then it really started getting going when I came over here and um, actually could go to a couple of meetings. And then George luckily brought in a whole bunch of guys. I knew him as a whip brush We at the had time. A, yeah, and... we had a crew looking for leadership. Yeah. It's kind of funny that we had to outsource to Minnesota to get it, but hey. Hey, no, <laughs> it's okay. And I came over anyways. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, like all of a sudden, like one day, 10 people came into the IRC channel all at once or something. I think you were part of that like influx. Yeah. Like was it from the IRC channel or where was yeah, that from?
1: Yeah, uh, because we had a lot of guys in the IRC channel. We had, right. you know, we had a, a, we have a very popular uh, Michigan user group, Linux user group in the area that we kind of knew a lot of people from. So when the Ubuntu side kind of sprang up, it was like we had a ready-made community of of guys that knew each other. Right. Um, we were all kind of local. We were Detroit-ish kind of thing. We were in a lug. But uh, we weren't Ubuntu, loco-specific and such. So it was kind of like, oh, well, yeah, I, I, I fit the bill for that. I'll right. idle in that channel too. Now it's like the only channel I talk daily in.
0: Yeah, same here. I, I came in later on. Um, I, I wasn't part of the mug or anything like that. I came into the channel itself and – yeah it was it was like walking into an already heavily made community i thought wow this is great you know they, they've they got an active community and and come to find out later on that it wasn't so ready made
2: yeah i mean it was kind of interesting because like i was lucky in the fact that there were all like a group of people all ready to go and like looking for something like this um so it really just took me like reining them in and saying hey let's do these things and convincing them that doing a loco was worthwhile. Um, you know, it's we're not just you know the puppets of Ubuntu, we're actually doing our own <laughs> thing here in Michigan. And I mean, we started some cool stuff. Yeah, um, no, I have to say, um, well, I'm not always, uh, we're not always as active as some of
1: the other groups and we are no, what is it, France with the thousand person right. release parties or right. anything? 5,000 sometimes. 5,000, yeah. sorry, I don't want to under, you know, under uh, impress there the French people. But I yeah. will say that, you know, every time they have like the jam and they're like, how about you do a packaging jam or a bug jam? I'm going, yeah baby that's michigan
2: (laughs) right right yeah it was great we were like the so the idea i don't know when we started that it must have been like early 2008 or something but um yeah like a couple of the people in the loco just started saying yeah we should do something like this and like we we're all interested in packaging so let's all learn together and go to rick's house and and figure out how to do it someone's gonna have a little bit more knowledge than other people but we're gonna do that like was my this thing. Jam I, I, I like model. to yeah. I
1: like to learn in like groups. I like to have people that yeah. know more than me around me and stuff. And I was like, I want to learn packaging. It came out of the whole Gnome Do thing, which was, right. uh, you know, a big popular thing at the time. I was like, I wanted to package that up and I wanted to figure out how to do it. And I'm like, there are other people that surely must want to know the same thing. And we had like, I don't know, nine or ten people out for that first packaging jam. It was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. What's awesome was that years later I had a guy I was like, hey, man, you know, I packaged that thing up that I was trying to get in there like later on or – I've, I've, like, done some packages since then, so it was kind of cool to, yeah. years later, to have people come back and go, yeah, that's cool. And now it's, like, in the official Ubuntu
2: docs. It's an right. off- official event. I mean, we have Ubuntu Global Jam now that we right. just did. I mean, that that definitely sprang out from our history of, yeah. of starting this whole jam idea. I mean, so jams aren't, like, original to Michigan Loco, no. right? I mean, like, this whole concept of learning together, I mean, we right. kind of, no. right, we, we borrowed it a little bit, but we definitely were the first in the Ubuntu community to, to kind of popularize it and say, here's a format that you can use. And... Oh yeah, no. I helped,
1: are, I, I helped go through a lot of docs because we were trying to take the uh, the Debian packaging docs and the Ubuntu packaging docs and put together something. So I remember I wrote up something for uh, Daniel Holbeck, who was like one of the head uh, Honcho dev guys over there on the Chronicle side, and like as a start of like, hey, here's what we did. I had a wiki page of all the stuff that we went through and like a pre-formatted like these are the steps we're gonna go through and stuff, and so. Very, very cool. So, yeah, the Loco's been awesome, and we can't thank Greg here enough for that because, uh, as I've said before, uh, I think the community's kept me on Ubuntu more than any technology they've put in that box so far.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a good group of people. Yeah, so... Yeah. Uh, and we'll we're, we're keep on going, too. I mean, we didn't just do the the Jam thing. I mean, we're... Right. And we don't just... So it was kind of interesting beginning to the, the Loco team to, as well. Like, we... The group of people that started it or that were initial part of it it was kind of this difference between people that wanted instructional sessions like the traditional lug, mm-hmm. go and learn about X software today or learn how to do X thing. I mean, we did some of that with the back packaging jams and whatnot, but we also just wanted to form a community people to hang out with. And we we kind of walk that fine line between just hanging out in the irc channel to actually getting things done we trip across it every once in a while yeah you know we're like oh crap we gotta do something it's (laughs) been been a couple months we should do something but we we still do do stuff and we we have the packaging or the bug jams and global jams and release parties and all that so I, i feel like we're we're walking that line fairly well for an organization that is surrounded by so many um, quality lugs and user groups, anyways, like that, the, that take yeah. care of that instructional side fairly well. We're just kind of infiltrating each one of those groups our own and, and <laughs> making sure that they, they do what we do.
1: Yeah, it's, I know um, one very cool thing is that our local user group has started up. They want to, um, they had to move locations, and the new location they found to hold their monthly Linux user group meeting uh, costs a little bit more than the old place. So they're trying to get meeting sponsorship, and uh, our local, I gotta say, has been awesome with uh, try, try to sponsor a meeting, and then not just to pay for that month, because what they wanna do is have someone pay for the fee for the room for that, for that month to hold the meeting, which the local members have stepped up and covered, which is awesome, but not only that, but now we're actually going to take over that meeting and give uh, specific content talks and stuff at that meeting. So yeah. I know I'll be talking uh, hopefully there about, um, you know, some of the awesomeness of the PPA system and what people can use it for in different ways and we'll have some other good stuff. So. Uh, I like I always like the uh, some people are very low on the locos where they're like, Oh, it's divisive to the community and all that stuff and I The special I always, interest group thing. Yeah, it and, is. Yeah. And I, I like to poke back that the uh, at the awesomeness that goes on when the when the loco actually supports the community around it, not just itself and, and yeah. canonical or, you know, whatever. So
2: Yeah, I wonder if any other loco has done something like that where they've partnered with another local group and said, hey, we're going to at least financially help you in some way or something. Yeah, I haven't
1: seen the financial side, but I know a couple months ago we were talking about events coming up and the Rochester, New York uh, loco was having a, like a, it wasn't quite an install fest, but it was like that after the Lug meeting. So it was like, come to the Lug meeting and stay for the Ubuntu kind of stuff. And I That's thought that cool. was really cool to, again, that cooperative between the local communities, you know, that already are out there and the Loco itself.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, if it wasn't
0: for the Loco, I wouldn't be here right now. Seriously. <laughs> I and mean, it's it's really been
1: that transformative. And you guys don't want to hear me talk to myself all day. That'd be a very, very painful podcast episode.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, it would.
1: So, anyways, but aside from that, you've actually got a lot of interesting stuff going on. You're out here working at the uh, University of Michigan Library.
2: Yep.
1: Which um, is interesting. I, ha- I don't know. Don't know many people that work at libraries. So, what do you? What in the world do you do with the library?
2: Well, so um, I'm a librarian by by training. I, I you graduate. don't have a bun? I don't see it. I, I don't have a cardigan on or anything, <laughs> but. And I'm male. <laughs> I was going to say,
1: does, does your dad give you like nurse like jokes, you know, or anything when you go home for Thanksgiving?
2: Fortunately, not. Yeah. Um, he can't do the nurse jokes because my mom is a nurse. So, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but yeah, so at the University of Michigan Library, my title is Copyright Specialist. And I work within the Copyright Office, um, which is a part of this thing called M Publishing, which is part of the library. Um, I explain that later. But the, the most important part is the Copyright Office, which it's not the even though our lead person our 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 supervisor her name is uh, her title is copyright officer even though it's officer it's not police it's not you know in enforcing of anything actually what our job is mostly is to help people figure out their copyright needs and questions and go talk to faculty and staff and students and answer their questions they have in real day-to-day you know predicaments. You know what can I do with this? And I have a student project that wants to use this content in this way, um, in this situation. How are we okay with that? Are you know what are the concerns we need to be aware of, and and what can we do so we can actually do it? And I mean that's what we really want to do is figure out ways that we can enable things to happen as opposed to say no. our our main duty is to enable.
0: So it's more than just putting up signs above all the copy machines that says, don't copy this though. We did that. We actually,
2: but our (laughs) sign does not say don't copy this. So, um, legally we need to put a sign above every copy or near every copier that says, you know, don't infringe copyright effectively. Um, but we decided to branch out and and put some context on that. It says like, know your copyrights, know that the, that you have this thing called fair use. Know that you have these other exemptions that allow you to make copies of certain works in certain circumstances. Um, you're not just being prohibited all the time. So our um, poster that we have above copiers is actually a little bit different than what you would see in normal libraries. I and mean, actually been um, other libraries have copied our poster because yeah. it's, it's kind of it's, – it's not – radical might be the wrong word. Um, it's more – it's truthful. Like, you know, fair use is the law. Right. Um, so let's, let's use it. Um, so yeah, that's what we'll, that's what we do mostly. And then um, part of that is my side of things is being a thumper for openness. Um, you know, I, I, my background is from working background. Most recently is from the Open Michigan project, which is a project here at University of Michigan that produces and helps people produce open educational resources. So the content from a course that can enable others to learn from it. Um, everybody's probably heard of the MIT Open Courseware project. Yeah, yeah. Um, We basically are doing a similar thing here only we're concentrating on everything around the course not just the syllabus and PowerPoints um, but you know like any image collections that are being used like we have you know hundreds of photos of eyeballs from the medical school like just eyeballs with different conditions and whatever that you know isn't a lecture in and of itself there's no real context around it but it's an educational resource that could be used by another professor somewhere else teaching whatever, that they could use to create their own content. So we look at it as a more larger scale. And then also the difference between us and MIT is that they spend about, oh, I don't know, a million or so dollars every year on doing this because they have a very staff centric view of creating open open courseware. And so basically a faculty member sends the materials to the staff, the staff grind on it for about 18 months, then send it back to the faculty, and then they post it. Um, which is vastly different in the process. Here we use students. They're much cheaper than staff. They work for pizza. I've heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> so we get students that are in the class, already have an interest in the material, and have a interest in getting to know the material better. Because if they know the material better, they get a better grade, and they can interact with the professor. And as the course is going on, they clear the content. They they look for copyright concerns, look for privacy concerns. Like you don't want you know students' names and grades that might be part of a presentation someday. Right. You know, like this is what we did in this past assignment, you know, but they'll remove that kind of stuff and um, look for openly licensed material that can be replacing stuff that's under full copyright that's in the material. Um, and then as the course is going on, they clear it and then we post it at the end of the semester. So it's a quicker turnaround and cheaper. So we're, we're going, I think we have like 10 schools within the University of Michigan now that have materials up through this process and expanding more every day, so.
1: How's uh, the student uptake today?
2: It's been hit and miss, um, yeah. And on all honesty. Uh, when we first started, we started the School of Information, which has the right, um, what's the right word, uh, ethos about it, right? Like all the, the people involved in the School of Information are kind of all about open access in general. Um, so the students and the faculty are on board from the get go. You didn't have to convince them. You just said, here, this opportunity. And they're like, yes, let's do it. Other schools, you have to do a little bit more convincing Um, you know what are the benefits for them of doing this open educational resource thing why should i put up my materials online Um, and usually the response is i mean so my usual response is to say well it it gives you more reputation right like just like you publish an article and to get people to cite you this is a way that people can build off of your materials and create their own materials and attribute you as a source of those original educational materials and your reputation grows in that way i mean reputation doesn't just come through your articles, it comes through your collaborations with other professors in other universities, and so this is just another way to do that. Um, and plus, from a purely selfish point of view, if more people do it, there's more materials to pull from and create your materials quicker. I mean, in the right. end game, it's all about more efficient production of education. You know, I found that with
0: a lot of like the science stuff because my wife deals a lot with uh, with science stuff for astronomy and that, and it just it, to me it seems like the the science is try and lock up things you know it's like oh I want to make sure that I do my discovery first and that I don't necessarily share all this stuff and to my way of thinking it's it should be more collaborative and right. seems more like you know sharing and an open and all the wonderful things that we we enjoy in our compu- in our computing society yeah and, that.
2: and it's actually interesting to hear you say that um, the scientists are like tend to close things up sometimes because from my perspective from a, a librarian the sciences are actually much more open than the other parts of the university really the humanities um like so looking at just from open access stuff like journal articles um the humanity journals they tend to be closed access they're not open access even worse than science yeah like in the sciences like in physics and stuff you have archive.org the arxiv.org which is basically a place for Faculty and researchers to post preprints of their articles, um, so it gets the material out there quicker. Like there's no, like it's not peer reviewed, mm-hmm. um, so there's not that aspect of it. It's not officially peer reviewed. There's you know, cloud or there's a um, um, crowdsourced <laughs> peer review going on, right. basically. You know, number of downloads and all that kind of stuff. But then the journals within the science disciplines, especially physics, are okay with taking an article that's already been quote unquote published on this website and publishing it in their journal. Whereas in the humanities, they're very slower to that kind of right. they they want an original article and doesn't right. seen nowhere else, exclusive here only kind yeah. of thing. Yeah.
0: Well, it seems to be with a lot of the journals too. They want to make yep. sure that you have the paywall in that and that you you know pay exactly. your your monthly fee or, or yearly
2: subscription yep. membership or thirty five dollars per article sometimes. <sighs> Something. Yep. That, yeah, it's ridiculous. Yep.
1: Yep. So where's uh, where can people find this open courseware material type of stuff because I haven't actually seen it before.
2: So it's actually really easy. open.umich.edu. Oh, that's a nice Tricky. URL. Very good URLs. We're, we're pretty we're happy with that URL. Yeah. Um it it actually took a lot of work to get that URL because to get a .umich yeah. is actually really hard. Um, yeah. it takes a provostial level act of god effectively yeah. to get that. So we convinced the university higher up so it's a very um, important part of the mission of the University of Michigan to share and, and create these kind of resources. I mean, I mean, part of the mission explicitly is to share knowledge, right? right. And we figured, hey, here you go. Let's share knowledge in a real way. Very cool. Yeah.
1: So um, we know that you're working here now, and you went through here for your grad program, right? So what did you go to school for here as your graduate? Is that, uh, is there a, a librarian graduate program?
2: Yep, so there's so the School of Information. I, I don't know. That. I don't know,
1: like, what is it? I've I <laughs> I, I never, like, uh, never actually seen a uh, degree of, like, you know, bachelor's of librarian or anything. So there's
2: usually not a bachelor's of librarianship, but every single librarian at every public library and every university has a master's degree. Okay. Um, to be a librarian, you needed an ALA accredited, American Library Association accredited master's degree. Um, so the University of Michigan, we had the School of Information, which has a library and information science specialization within it. Um, I dual specialized with library and information science and information policy. So looking at things like copyright and privacy mm-hmm. and security and things like that. <coughs> so yeah, basically I graduated with, with that program. So you just much
1: have the much have a blast with the news every single day these days. Yeah. You can't avoid all the uh, copyright and, and, and trademarks and all the yeah. fun Google in the tech stuff tech world these days. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh my goodness. And the
0: stuff on tech dirt. Oh yeah, yeah, TechDirt,
2: yeah. exactly. Um, if, if anyone follows me on Google Reader, you'll notice that probably one out of seven or so articles from TechDirt, I'll share Because <laughs> yeah. I, I find the, it, it's a good source for breaking news in like copyright and intellectual property kind of areas. Whether or not you agree with Mike Maznick, the, the proprietor of TechDirt, he tends to be a copyright minimalist in some ways, um, but it's a great source for at least a good opinion to work with.
0: That's the whole reason I'm following is because of all of your articles that you shared.
2: <laughs>
1: awesome, good to know. <laughs> Well, yeah, so that leads us to, um, I know we in the local here tend to abuse you, much like we we abused George for his uh, tie-ins to the canonical internals, and we abuse you because you did, uh, what is it, was it an internship with Creative Commons? Yep. uh The organization out in California, and uh, so we like to ask you all of our questions like, Greg 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 I'm I'm going to put this picture up. What creative commons license am I supposed to use for this? Or I'm changing
0: yeah. the license of my podcast. What should right. I use? Right. I remember
2: that one recently. <laughs> I don't know where that
0: one came
1: from. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> Open metalcast. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, go check it out. Um, anyways, uh, so how was that? And it, obviously, that seems to definitely fit within the bill of your uh, degree there and everything. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of interesting. You know, we all know of Creative Commons, and, and we actually know someone that worked there. Like, what did you? What did you do? And how was that? And how does that influence where you're headed
2: from here? So a lot, I guess, is the, the answer <laughs> to the last question. Um, well, so, good. <laughs> yeah, done. All right. No. Um, um, we hoped you had something <laughs> to say on the topic. <laughs> Two words. Um, yeah, so between my first and second year of the grad program, two-year grad program, I went to Creative Commons for a summer and was officially an intern there. My official title was something like community development assistant or something like that. Um, basically, put Lackey on there? They didn't just put Lackey. Oh, okay. Luckily. Um, that wouldn't look good on the resume. Um, it looks good on a business card, though. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I worked with a guy named John Phillips, who was a community and business development person at Creative Commons for a few years, and basically, I worked on a few different projects, everything from writing documentation for a um, software package called CC Host, which runs the website ccmixer.org. Um, it's a CC Mixer. For those that don't know, it's a site that allows musicians and others to upload. Songs and samples and other things, and create remixes of other other people's material and re-upload those new remixes. And it keeps together like all the the provenance of the old, like what you remixed of, and everything is on their CC license. So it's actually a really good source for like podcasts and things like that. You can find good samples to to build your new best hit with. Um, But the software that runs that that keeps track of all the information for you is called CC Host and worked with the lead developer on that to write the documentation for the next release of that, and that was two years ago. I mean, I don't think there's been an official release since then, but, you know, so it's an important release again, I guess. <laughs> um, CC Host 5.0. Um, and then I worked on a couple projects about, um, more closely related to library issues, actually. There's this project about um, the copyright status of books. So there's Internet Archive and Google Book Search and all that kind of stuff, And There was this need to um, allow people to kind of crowdsource the copyright status of things. Um, It it never really got anywhere because it's a really tough problem, right? Like it, It took more than two people during the summer to figure out what the best process is to get people to... Um, figure out if something is in the public domain or not. Um, You know, like what information do you need to make that decision? Um, How reliable sources do you need? Things like that. And what should the interface look like that allows that? Um, So that was a very involved project that unfortunately never came to fruition. Um, The sponsoring organization basically stopped they're like we're we're done after a year. Um, yeah. It's not done. Um, not really a failure per se because the materials it's just that were a hard nut to crack. It's a very hard nut to crack. Um, so I guess yeah. for First one
1: who's not familiar with it. It's, yeah, it sounds just like you would look at when the published date was and do a little math and figure that you out. You
2: would think so. It takes a so for things before 1923, mm-hmm. they're in the public domain. Anything that's published before 1923, that's pretty simple. That's one hard cutoff time. Um, for things after 1973, or 63, I'm sorry, um, pretty much everything by default is in copyright, unless it's under an open license or something like that. But between 23 and 63, it's actually crazy as heck.
0: Um, Take a look at the H.P. Lovecraft and Arthur Conan Doyle estates sometime. Oh, yeah? Yeah, they're insane with the amount of copyright stuff. And oh, yeah, yeah. They're still trying to figure out what the status of all that stuff oh, is. I'm sure.
2: Because, yeah, like during, the, during that period, there's... Um, a mishmash of law that was basically w- applied to copyright so for a portion of time you needed to put the c with a circle and date on it for it to be protected by copyright for a portion of time you needed to register actively with the university or sorry the united states copyright office to get copyright protection if you failed to do those things you didn't get copyright protection mm-hmm. um so basically for that time period you need to go look at those records which aren't digital yet right. there i mean like some there's some scans available but ocr sucks right. um because it was all handwritten for a portion of time right i mean <laughs> yeah. we're talking like right, right. before computers whoa whoa yeah <laughs> what ah. yeah there was a period right so yeah i mean it's just a really hard problem and to that's deal just with. in the
0: united states too i mean you're yeah. not talking about britain's oh, not laws talking about international
2: law at all yeah yeah, yeah which is another layer of craziness on top of that. So, I mean, a really cool example is um, Night of the Living Dead is actually in the public domain which is because awesome. someone failed to put the C with a circle on it. Oh. Yeah. So it's public domain. That's why there's so many cool remixes of it and all that kind of stuff and why they made new versions of it to right. get copyright protection for their new versions, the, the sequels and things like that. Huh. Yeah. See, so we can geek out for a while on this, but... Say, <laughs> we bring <laughs> you
1: educational information as well. And here I was just thinking you decided to do a simple math subtraction calculation for this kind of stuff. Mm. We wanted
2: to. We actually had some... So one of the, the products of this project was some Python code that mm. if you gave it the correct input would give you a yes or no. But just getting that input was the hard part. Like you can do the flowchart of the things you need to know and you can turn that flowchart into code. Right. But it's just finding that information is tough. Gotcha. Um, yeah, and then so I guess back to the things I did at Creative Commons. There was another project with... Basically, doing case studies, like talking to high-profile members of the Creative Commons community that are using the licenses and you know being successful in their new business endeavors, and and seeing how they did it and what suggestions they have for the community. So, interviewed Cory Doctorow about you know his new publishing model and you know, like putting everything up online for right. free under a Creative Commons license and. You know, doing book tours and signings and and, um, podcasts and things like that to drum up support and, you know, being on a New York Times bestseller list for six weeks when you could download the book for free. Gotcha. Um, So, and talking with, um, or I didn't talk with, but did a case study for Nine Inch Nails. Mm. Didn't get that interview lined up. (laughs) Damn. Trent, if you're listening. So, yeah, it was cool. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Got a lot of cool contacts with people in the community that are doing cool things, so. That's cool. Hmm. I,
1: I have to say, I, I have kind of a personal curiosity question with Creative Commons because obviously I'm not as into um, all the things that they do, but um, it's uh, it's kind of interesting because you have like the set of licenses that make sense for a whole lot of conditions and everyone goes and they go look at the chart and they go, which one should I use? And they pick that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of curious, like, I know I've seen them hiring developers, and that's probably where stuff like this music project and stuff comes through. Um, and I was kind of curious, like, what's like what's next? Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, it seems like once you have the licenses kind of set out, that it'd be like, okay, this is pretty much the rules everyone should kind of stick with right. for now. And uh, if you got a question, <laughs> let us know. Yeah. but uh, obviously they're doing more kind of things, and I was just kind of curious, like, what's what's like the future of Creative Commons? What other things can they really get their hands into, or or really help out the community with,
2: or yeah? Um, so I mean, from a very technical level. Um, the things that create con- like why you see them hiring developers is because there's a lot of infrastructure that's needed to make sure these things work because so the licenses for people that aren't familiar have basically three layers to them first you have the human readable deed the part that says you are free to reuse this work as long as you attribute and share a like you know kind of mm-hmm. thing like the, the the pretty colored version that you get linked to most often um so that's not the legally binding part though that's just the pretty part underneath that you have the legal code the five pages of legal text that no one but geeks like me like to read. Um, but that part is actually what give these things teeth in the court of law. They've mm-hmm. actually gone to court and, and and been tried and, you know, been found to be violent licenses. In the United States? Or um, There was one case that referenced them in the United States. Okay. Most of the cases that actually talk about them specifically, the cases about them specifically, has been the Netherlands and Israel. So. That's what I thought.
0: I didn't think there was yeah. anything on, on yeah, the state side.
2: There was a court case, um, Jacobson v. Katzel. I mean, Jacobson Case that um, had to deal with artistic public license, which is a you know another right. public license, um, very similar in, in you know formulation and, and principles, um, and they the case was about that, but they referenced other public licenses like Creative Commons licenses. So, um, right. So and then you had the, the human readable deed, the legal code, and then below that you had the metadata part, which enables search engines like Google and Yahoo to search the internet and figure out that this object over here is under this license. So there's this standard called RDFA that basically is a addition you can put in with your HTML that you can Tag certain objects on your web page as under certain specific licenses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just for Creative Commons, other licenses are supported for it too. Um, but it allows that like machine readable knowledge of things, you know, like semantic web, right? Oh, you know, yeah. the, mm-hmm. the browser doesn't just see. Microformats right, and all that stuff. Exactly, fun yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of infrastructure there that needs to happen, like talking to the standards committees and things like that um, to make sure that that happens well and, and we're well represented in the mm-hmm. process. Um, but then on a real level, you have the cool benefits of that, which are like, if you are on a site that has that metadata on it, and you click a link to the license, you can the page that opens, that that license deed page that has the the pretty language and all that on it, um, there'll be this scraper that goes back to the refer, that the page that you clicked on from, scrapes that page, figures out all the information it can about that page, and then pop up this little nice copy pastable attribution code that you can use to oh, attribute the work okay. you just came from. So it's like, you know, little niceties like this that are actually kind of hard to do programmatically. You know, like you got to have a scraper that can look at the refer and then parse this HTML and all that kind of stuff. So, and then there, of course, is just the infrastructure of actually hosting the licenses and um, dealing with the different translations of the licenses because we have 50 or so um, ported versions of these licenses. So licenses that actually have been um meaning modified the legalness of them to local jurisdictions. So there's a US version, a UK version, a Germany version, a Korean version, a whatever. And there's like 50 of those. And then each of those jurisdictions need to be translated. <laughs> so,
1: so we're keeping the lawyers busy. That's good. Mm-hmm. Keeping the
2: lawyers busy, <laughs> paying some, well, luckily most of them are volunteers that help with that process. Uh, we have a really active international community that helps with that. Right. Um, so right, so that's the big part of why we have developers and hiring in that area, um, and then so other parts that are the future of Creative Commons would be version 4.0. So right now we're at version 3.0. The licenses came out a couple years ago, three years ago or something, um, and we're about due for the starting of the process to make a version 4.0 where we ask for community input. What are the problems you first? What are the problems you see with the license? what solutions are here now that we weren't there, or what problems were now that weren't there before. What what problems are there with that? Because it seems like yeah, there wasn't that much difference
0: between 1.0 and 2.0 and 3.0. It just seemed like it, it did a little more clarification.
2: Yeah, I, yeah. most of it's clarification um, in some parts. Some parts are still fuzzy, unfortunately. Okay. Um, but one of the major things with 3.0 was working with, um, I guess it'd be with the Free Software Foundation and debian actually to figure out how we can make these licenses compatible with the debian free software guidelines right okay um, right so for a while there they weren't compatible due to like drm stuff and things like that and, and some people still think they're not compatible with the the free software guidelines from debian some people will agree think they are it's it's kind of like an interpretation difference reasonable minds can disagree on this Um, so most of it is that they're trying to address concerns from specific communities that we have a vested interest in, Creative Commons being, you know, very much in the open community isn't very much cares about the free software community as well. Um, so right, like recently, um, Wikipedia switched from the GNU free documentation license to Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike, and that was because of very close conversations between the Free Software Foundation and Creative Commons to create a new version of the GFDL, version 1.3, that allowed for a specific window (laughs) for a specific type of website, a massively editable (laughs) web page, aka Wikipedia, to transition to a Creative Commons license before this date. So So it was basically like a little out for them.
0: So would it be a goal then to have... Richard Stallman adopt the creative commons license for his stuff? He uses it for some things actually. Does he? He okay. uses
2: some of so the free software foundation uses predominantly the attribution no derivatives license for a lot of their like video content. Okay. Um they have their reasoning for using a no derivatives con- uh, license for that. I mean there's there's an essay that Stallman has written about like the difference between functional things and entertainment things. Um, one he believes should be modifiable and, and you know learn from and new modifications to it and derivatives and all that. And the other, he feels, is, is less in need of that. So that's why they use a no derivatives license. Sort of like the something. exceptions
0: that they make for game content versus right. this, the source code itself. Okay. Exactly. It's well, exactly.
1: interesting thing. I've actually run into a couple times lately where I have seen source code under a Creative Commons license. And it's kind of weird because I, I have never really thought about it. Every time I say it, I kind of go, oh, I guess you could apply it like that. Yeah. Um, so what's what's the deal with that? Like, um, is that something that they're like Creative Commons is like a, a goal of or anything, or is it just people slapping a license on something?
2: Or, or... mostly it's ignorance, unfortunately. Okay. Um, it, on whose part? The users' part. Okay. The developers' part. Okay. Um, so the the short answer is, don't do it. Uh, um, <laughs> all right, that's good to know. Not just because like, so the mo- main reason is these are written for things other than source code.
1: That's what I was, that's the impression I got, which yeah. is why it seems strange to see it on source code. But yeah, I have yeah. I lately seen it more, uh, you know, more often. Yeah. Obviously I haven't seen it all that often, but uh, um, that's Yeah, I
2: see it on like JavaScript sometimes. Like I'll look at the source code for a web page, and I'll click on the JavaScript and it'll be under like a non-commercial Creative Commons license. And many times that has actually prevented me from reusing that JavaScript because of the, the problems with the non-commercial clause in, right. in many contexts. Um, right, yeah, so the, the main, so they weren't written for source code for, for software because, or in the, and because of that, there's no distinction in the licenses between binary and source, right? So it just talks about the thing, the work, right. and what your interpretation of that work is could differ. Um, so under the license, you could release a binary, you, you could legally release, release a binary under a Creative Commons license that allows people to share it and modify the binary Mm -hmm. Um, under the certain terms, right? But it doesn't actually require the source code, like the GPL or something does. Um, so that it just wasn't a problem they were trying to solve when they were writing the, the licenses, because they saw it was a solved problem. You know, that's there's so already that hundreds of licenses out good. there, right? Like, yeah. Because yeah. didn't have
1: whatever. The first time I saw it, I was like, you didn't have enough options out right. there. Right. <laughs> yeah. <Exactly>. like, well, <laughs> it makes
0: more sense for the stuff like the content itself. That you know, like if you have a game program, you have the images and the OG files or mm-hmm. MP3 files. Those could be Creative Commons licensed and leave the source code under, you know, GPL or yep. whatever you want to yep. release it under. Uh, yep. Well,
1: that's that's cool. It's interesting. I, I I was I had not looked into like what the actual like condition was. And I wasn't sure if that was something that was like a, yeah. a goal or a or marketing just thing of uh, Creative Commons, which it sounds like. No, we, yeah. we ran into
0: that uh, in my previous. Oh, tab, really? Yeah. Where people would try and release their stuff and say, why, do why don't you have a Creative Commons license? Like It doesn't make sense for source right. code.
2: So there's one thing I should add, though. Um, there is So we have a suite of licenses, the so six licenses, but there's also a waiver, a CC0 waiver, which basically is effective like public domain. Um, It basically says, I'm waiving all of my rights to this work and releasing it into the public domain. Um, That doesn't use the the phrase public domain because public domain is U.S.-centric. Yes. Um, But to make it international, it just basically is getting rid of everything you can get rid of, everything that you can legally get rid of, you get rid of. <laughs> um, so some people actually use this for source code because it actually okay. makes sense. It's like yeah. saying like the WFTPO or something like that, you right. know? <laughs> or the it's, buy me a beer license. Right, you know, it's just like <laughs> saying public domain, take it, I don't right. care, right. whatever. Um, so that that is a acceptable use of that waiver. Okay. Um, And then also on this topic, the blog post should be today or tomorrow, so it should be fine for me to to say it now since Uh this episode won't go out too quick. But we're going to address the um, plain text file version of the licenses issue. So right now we have the human readable deed, which is fancy HTML and JavaScript, and then the legal license part of it, which is still HTML and JavaScript and some CSS and stuff going on. Um, but for a long time, people use Creative Commons licenses for like game content and other things in open source projects. And to be in like Debian and things like that, you need to have the license associated with that content in with the package, right? Like right. the the copying file, the license file. Yeah. Um, so we're gonna we made plain text versions of these of the licenses, all six licenses oh, that's cool. um, available that are like you know, at the where you would expect them to be in the URL. Right. You just add a .txt at the end of the URL, and there you are. Gotcha. Um, so We'll be announcing that with some instructions on how to use it um, for free software developers. Well, and, and stuff like, like Jamendo
0: too where you get the, the zip file and it just says what the license is, but it doesn't actually give you a right. copy of the license. Right. To Sometimes they it. just give
2: you a URL or something like that. But yeah. it's really nice to have the actual license code in there for, yeah. for legal yeah. reasons. Yeah.
1: Awesome. So, um, so let's keep going with this whole open and what you uh, license and stuff too. I know you've been really uh, interested in and done some stuff with open data and i at first i wasn't really you know i wasn't all that into it but i've seen a lot of things where like even like the locos and things get involved with open data projects at government re, you know like governmently sponsored let's have an open data day for you know the you know state of new york's you know process where they give you access to all the state data and you figure out what you can do with it as like a hacker developer kind of thing. So right. that that was like, ooh, wait, that actually gets interesting now. Access to large swaths of data to do some software development around and all that. Right. So <laughs> as someone who's a little bit new to that kind of thing, like, so what's up with that? And are you involved in any of that? Is there any of that going around over here that I sh- we should know about? I-, I know that there was a um, announcement about some kind of little hack festy thing coming along. Or- yep.
2: Yep. We we did one. Oh, shoot, it must have been a couple months ago now. Um, on open data day hackathon which was like a international you know day of open data hacking like going out and finding that data from your own local governments and doing something with it Um, so we got a group together at the Ann Arbor District Library and settled on the data of the the credit card receipts effectively from the the city Um, they have to use use a credit card and for every purchase over I think it was like three hundred dollars or something there's an Excel spreadsheet that you can download of every single purchase and not who made it but where it was and the date and the amount mm-hmm. right um unfortunately the where it was is like the what you see when you go to like your your credit card receipt where it has that like sometimes crappily named oh, yeah. like merchant mm-hmm. uh, vendor merchant number and id and all that stuff so sometimes it's not really easy to figure out who it is um but we decided to get that data uh clean it up some and then a lot of data munging there and then make an interface so people could comment on and and like flag certain purchases as maybe questionable or should be reviewed, things like that. So basically making the the purchasing history of the city more transparent and, right. and commentable upon, you know, like why are they always going to Zingerman's deli as opposed to the other deli in town? You know, like questions like that you can try to answer. Doesn't it mean, get a little nosy though? A little bit, yes. Okay. Um we basically had people there at the hackathon that were of that personality right they wanted to see total transparency of the government and that's cool i mean like
1: Uh, it's a it's let's be honest it's not like you know they're all that open as it is right now so i mean you know yeah but uh no that so that's kind of interesting is there like a um organization or anything then around that's kind of like pushing like you know how do you get some of that data transparent i know there was a whole hubbub back when the uh the smartphones were coming out around like uh who owned the data for like the subway maps and the subway yeah. schedules yep. and all that kind of <coughs> or stuff? Or the uh, the Ann Arbor parking meters? Yes, oh, yeah, remember, that right. remember that one. Remember that one? Yeah. So do you remember that? Or, I, I yeah. is there, you know, what's uh, how, how do people you know what what kind of process is there to kind of get involved and to get some data out there that sh- that should be public maybe that isn't?
2: Well, I mean your your ultimate last answer is always a FOIA request. Um, for people I don't know, it's a Freedom Information Act request. You know, saying you're a government. You, know, entity, you need to be able to, you need to give me this information unless there's certain security or whatever right, right, privacy right. concerns. Like you're not, you can't FOIA social security numbers, right? You can FOIA other things though. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not like the right. terrorists are,
1: are running around looking for open parking meters right. to uh Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
2: So people that don't know, there was this, this um, situation in Ann Arbor where a group of guys just were reading the data off of a website from the number of spaces available in the parking garages in town the the city owned but privately operated parking garages. Um, and they basically made a service where you could call in or text in and, and figure out which ramp had space. Um, and the city kind of shut them down. They they started blocking the IP address that was pulling the information, so they started mm. doing some IP address spoofing and then oh, they yeah, the came battle back. The battle oh it was the techie battle, right? And the geeks getting back and forth and making the the prototypical scenario on the movies, like people like with their NOCs going crazy, hacking each other and whatever. No, it's, it was mostly, right, the Gibson, <laughs> right, that's it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it ended up okay. Like, they got along, but the project's yeah. kind of defunct for the most part. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a bummer. Yeah.
1: It is really interesting, though. I, I think there's a lot of potential for that kind of stuff going forward because it's, it's very open source friendly. I like the idea of we don't have the resources or the budget to put together a cool service like a where should I go to find a parking spot However, if we just put the data that we already have just stick it out, then yep. suddenly other people can provide the service yep. and the community benefits and, and all that. So it's, it's one of those things where it's uh, it's, it's a nice little open source right. niche of, uh, I, I, the open data stuff is very, definitely more interesting. I definitely want to try to hang out at one of these uh, hackfests here yeah. in the future and come out. I think it'd be a, a lot of fun to do.
2: Yeah, there's uh, a good organization if you want more information, the Open Knowledge Foundation, OKFN, they're, they're based in England but so they have a you know most of the projects i do are focused around well, that's what i remember seeing Europe, that there was a data. big
1: english or, or something out there uh, kind of situation where they had like all of their um, representatives or something like all of their like what money they spent right on where does my money go yeah yep. and i and i uh, evidently you can get a lot of info out there at, and at, they were um, you know mechanical turking kind of thing the uh, go through all the data and find and yep. flag like you say the the things suspicious that should be Zingerman's yeah. deli right. every single day
0: right <laughs> Why doesn't he bring his lunch? And it's, it's $10, $10 and
1: sandwiches? And it's over $300. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of Zingerman. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Not too um, much, actually.
1: <laughs> so that's kind of cool. And I definitely want to encourage everyone to get involved with that. I think that's an awesome project. And so now let's kind of get to back where we started with this whole the blog post about the whole canonical um, Banshee situation. And we don't want to beat the dead horse because it's dead now, but we've moved on. Definitely dead. We're, we're adults now and all that. But I did that. We, we scheduled this interview because I really loved your post and the idea of um, uh, you don't often hear the term governance. You know, it's not something that I read every day on blog posts. It, it isn't really dis- it's like it's discussed a whole lot. But this was a situation that brought out just how vital and important that idea of of knowing the governance of a project it can really be and really important. And I don't know if you could kind of do a little quick summary kind of thing of your blog post and what you were what was going on there yeah
2: so i mean i guess i don't need to really recap the kerfuffle too much other than there was a kerfuffle between the banshee community and the canonical um people corporation corporation (laughs) yeah Yeah. i don't know what to call them um canonical between canonical (laughs) um so right like governance in ubuntu is is fairly transparent for the most part um it was set up to be Pretty well run. Um, Benjamin Mako Hill was one of the first people that kind of implemented the governance structure with the community council and the tech board and all those things. Yeah, so we talk
1: about governance, we're talking about basically the people that make decisions. Like, yep. how do decisions get made and how far up the tree do they get made? And if a decision isn't agreed with by other parties, what, you know, what are the your arbitrators? Your, how, yeah. where can you take things from there to get that resolved? Yeah, and, and all that. So, governance is kind of a big idea, a lot of different parts to it. Um, to kind of set up like yeah. how things are going to work as a set of rules for this. Yeah. So yeah, we've got we got the community council. Um, there's what there's a technical council. Yep. And there's is, the, local kind of council, the, the local council, the membership council. Councils, right. Yep.
2: So Ubuntu has gotten to the point where they can't just have one council and one governing body anymore. They need, yeah. like, I'm on the uh, membership board for the Americas that our sole purpose in life is to approve or not approve people applying for Ubuntu membership. So people that are trying to show they have sustained and um, substantial contributions to Ubuntu. Me, I, I yeah.
1: owe you a beer too. We're gonna talk about that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs>
2: so yeah, I mean, so that used to be all done by the community council, but then the meetings were dragging on to like four hours long because yeah, they do grew. All the local approvals right. yep. and
1: all that kind of any kind of issues between the locos yep. or people that come up they had to handle. And yeah, yep.
2: it was so Ubuntu is a pretty large community in that respect, but the community council now focuses on. The the major issues, like the if there's any major issue going on in between, like the, the biggest ones would be like the Ubuntu 1 naming yeah, issue. I mean, nice people one, yeah. took issue with the fact that it was called Ubuntu 1, not Canonical 1, um, because it was a for-profit commercial service with right. a closed code being on the server side, right? Mm-hmm. So there was a huge discussion there. And it went to the community council. And the community council is an interesting body because um, Mark Shuttleworth, is on the community council will forever be on the community council um and at the end of the day he is you know lives by his irc handle sab the self-appointed benevolent dictator for life like right if he doesn't like the decision the community council made for whatever reason um he can reverse it if need be um so basically that's how some of those citizens made like the abun one decision was you know we he let people voice their concerns mm-hmm. and and listen to his reasoning for why he felt it should be this way and why it wasn't a problem. Um, and at the end of the day, he just did it, right? Um, no yeah. issue either way. A, right, with, yeah, you know,
1: yeah. With the bench issue, they had a council meeting that he was in and there's a log of that. And that what's, what's nice, it's interesting because, um, like you say, it was set up very, very open. And so... When there's no issues, it all looks like it's just all community. All
2: peachy. It yeah. is.
1: It's, it's an all peachy community thing. We all sit down together and we make decisions and all that kind of thing for what's the best for the community and all that. But every once in a while, something comes there's, up yeah. and uh, it kind of moves up the chain and you think, well, all right, let's get the community council together. And what comes out of the community council is the uh, the, the layer above the community council has spoken.
0: It's sort of certainly like yeah. Britain realizing that they have a monarchy still. Yeah. yeah, right?
2: Exactly. Yeah. It's it's kind of like that. I mean, it, to be fair, I the community council can make decisions without Mark, right? Right, right. Um, and he doesn't always exercise veto power for his personal reasons. Like, right. He is a decent guy for the most part. No, right? and I, I don't. I don't, don't want to frame this no, thing as a yeah, personal yeah. thing with Mark at Not all, at all. Right. Not because at
1: all. It, it was never like a Mark has made a decision and and he decided that this is how it was going to go. I mean, there was a lot of talk. There was miscommunication. The whole thing was exactly a, a kerfuffle. It was a huge. Kerfuffle. It was a nice kerfuffle. But I, I just, I of all the blog posts that were out there, right? Because you know, of course, this hits the fan. Suddenly, you've got people. <laughs> all over with their opinions and what should happen and what, you know, what is happening and why it's happening and why they think it's happening, but um, when I ran across your post, and, you know, this is because, like, I know you when you're sitting across the table from me or anything, you know, but it was nice because you took this interesting angle of, just remember the governance structure and realize that this is the world we are actually a part right. of, and while yes, right now it seems like all your little dreams are shattered or whatnot, this is no different than how every other day is, and it's how the thing works, yep. and... That you know, you just have to remember that I don't. Know, it was it was a different take. It wasn't it wasn't flaming. It wasn't you know trying to put out a fire. It was just a very good kind of neutralish That's right. yeah. illumination. Illumination. Well, illumination. I think is a good yeah. way to put it. Like when I read that, I was like, you know what, that is an interesting. I it, like like you say, it kind of brought forth more ideas than what I had reading dozens and dozens of other posts before it Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: so um, I know we definitely pointed people at it in our previous shows when we talked about this kind of thing and all that but uh... so that's kind of interesting I mean what kind of uh... community stuff you know you seem kind of like a little mini community wizard then Um, what kind of community stuff other than like the loco (laughs) I mean are you a big fan of Jono's book?
2: so I actually just read like another piece of Jono's book the other day as I was preparing for something in, in you know when i first read Jono's book to be honest i was like yeah cool but then fortune bars i knew everything in there right for that right. knew everything in there but i knew the context which within he was working like the ubuntu community and right. the governance structure there so a lot of it was things that i already knew but then uh, the big important part about jono's book was all the stories and the real life examples that he gave in there um you know the situation where a community team in in the uk had some there was the issue between uh, a team in the UK about uh, some financial issues and in Jonah's book, like he, he talked about them, but you know, kept them anonymous for their yeah. for their needs. But um, basically talking about how he dealt with that issue and, and how the people involved came to a resolution that they found agreeable between all parties. And that's really useful history and going forward in other projects, not just in Ubuntu, but other projects as well, like learning from those growing pains effectively. Um, is, is really important. So, in the end, I like the book. Yeah, <laughs> the, the book
0: Art of Community. Yep, right. Yeah. At Riley Press.
1: And it's cool because I, when your post came about the governance, that brought back when I read the book because um, it's a lot of things that you don't think about, like, hey, we're trying to start a podcast community, or hey, I'm going to try to start a software project, which is a community and all that. And you don't think about, actually, at the end of that book, I was like, man, I've got so much more work to do than I had before I read this book. (laughs) I hate you, Jono. Um, But no, but it was all good stuff to know. It was things that, you know what, yeah, I better think about these things now rather than later when they happen. You want to think about how are we going to resolve conflicts between members of the community before you have problems so that there's a, okay. look, the book, the great book says the way we (laughs) handle this is to go through these steps and at the end you will be all happy. Did we just refer to Jonah's book as the Bible
2: right there? No.
1: no okay. No, good. No, I wouldn't do that. No. Good. <laughs> but honestly, a lot of a lot of people
0: when they start up projects in that they don't think they they think okay I'm just going to throw the code out there and then the community is just going to magically happen. And we're all going to get to get along together oh, yeah. and it's going to be you know Willy Wonka
2: all over the place. <laughs> right. And people don't understand the darker side of Willy Wonka. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean and remember the the median number of the, of contributors to any open source project is. One. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on several of those. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh.
1: But, yeah, so, no, that's, uh, that's good stuff. That's a lot of fun. Um, yes. Uh, I'm interested to see how the new release. So, uh, yeah. you, uh, Natty's coming. Have you played with it at all?
2: Played with it this past Sunday at our Global Jam. Oh, I right. honestly yeah. hadn't um, installed on my machine yet. I've been... Uh. My excuse is I'm too busy, and I oh, yeah, yeah. wasn't gonna try a beta or alpha software while I'm in the. Well, I think the past, of
0: the past month, it's it's grown a lot. Oh yeah, good because yeah, we
1: gotta ask Craig. So Craig, yeah. so you yes. installed it at the jam, and I think you've actually been using it some since.
0: Yeah, I installed it on my netbook. Um, I have the original Asus E701, four gigabyte machine. We're gonna start
1: a fun for Craig here in a little bit.
0: <sighs> this this machine, yeah, it became a little unusable. Unfortunately, but when you
1: have a 4-gig drive, and what was it? The installer gave you a gig of swaps. So yeah, gave you right. <laughs> You were installing on a 3-gig hard drive. I was like, dude, I'm trying to think back. When did I have a 3-gig hard drive? It's been a little while. Yeah, I, I, I think
0: the, the, the year heading 19 in front of it. <laughs>
1: I think that's safe to say. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, I, I've been using it, though, on a, on a USB stick. And on a reasonably decent machine, it's very good. I enjoy it. Um,
1: Anything I you're do- looking forward to, Greg?
2: Uh, After the new release, uh, other than uh, Unity, I mean, it's just going to be a crazy new realm to be productive in. I'm going to see how it works, because from what I was testing on Sunday, it it seems like it will be fairly conducive to, like, getting things done. Like, I mean, everybody was worried about, like, I mean, some people were worried more about, like, who they are marketing it for and whether it's actually going to be helpful for people. Um, Right. I, I feel like it, it has some of the good qualities of the Tiling Window Manager. You know, like snap and the keyboard shortcuts. As keyboard well. shortcuts. The super key
0: is is super. Yep. Yeah. It's
2: very, get very
1: Super duper. Get very very friendly with your super key. Yeah, yeah. That came out of the jam. That is your Windows or Linux key or whatever you want to call it on most. That, machines. It's that
0: key that you're ignoring unless you're using Emacs. <laughs> hey,
1: anyway, or awesome, the Tiling Window Manager of choice. Who? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to ride home with me, buddy. You I know. Ride home. <laughs> No, so that's cool. So uh, other than that, not a whole lot on Unity. Yet you, you know, kind of just been following it from a distance, kind of thing. Yeah, it, you know, I tell you what, it is kind of funny because I remember when I first got involved with the you, know, you started tracking like all the stuff and every bullet point. Ooh, it's oh, it's gonna be someone nice. Oh, and then after like the last couple, I don't know, the last year or two has been like. Yeah, let me know when it's out, and I'll go. Great. I'll go see yeah. if there's anything that I need. I mean, I'm still running uh, LTS on my laptop here, and I, I, I I'm mean, on I don't, LTS at home. I don't have oh, really? I, I don't have Maverick yeah. installed hmm. here, you know and stuff. And
2: it's kind of like, well, there wasn't really anything in Maverick that I
1: needed.
2: Yeah, see, I was I. This is my first release that I haven't installed the alpha, and just like yeah. blindly upgraded, like in place. Right, like not not even doing a different partition, just going, you going with You are a rebellious man. Oh. It was right. during well, we school. Should. School wasn't that important, yeah. you know. <laughs> Those papers, right. all that yeah, guys, yeah they disappear. Bug okay, right. reports are more yeah, you important. Just, you just tell your professor alpha, and they... Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: no, but uh, we should let everyone know that the beta did drop back at the uh, Bug Jam weekend, so it, it's out there, and if you're it adventurous... It dropped twice, actually. Well, yeah, it, it actually <laughs> had some updates right away. But um, it's very fast moving still but if you are adventurous the beta times a time where some people can get we always be able to like if you're not a developer don't jump on the alpha train you're just, right. you're asking to be that guy in the Ubuntu forums on page 10 of like my X is broke too how do I get my login back up you know so but the beta is you know, if you you know some stuff, it's uh, it's a good time to start helping to test, help get some bugs yeah reported, help you know confirm some bugs that are out there. There's some good work to be done in the beta cycle. Yeah, make sure and, your uh, stuff works. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, the stuff that you use because obviously not everyone uses the same set of apps or hardware or keyboard shortcuts or whatever. And, you know? and test
0: Banshee to make sure that it's good for people like
1: me. Thank you. <laughs> Someone's not bitter at all. Isn't he? <laughs> Awesome. So uh, we'll let, uh, let Greg go and get out of here because it's the end of the workday, and we want him to get home and uh, and have uh, fun with the uh, the kids and all. <laughs> I don't have any kids. Oh right. Uh, yeah. Go go <laughs> rent some. <laughs> I got one for you. No, but uh, so thanks so much for sitting down with us. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, yeah. and uh, outside of canonical Ubuntu and uh, the whole world like here, there's actually a whole other. It's almost like a little different side of open sourcey kind of things when you get into the ideas of the licenses and open data and creative commons and all that. And so lots of stuff to get interested in and to track and follow and be a part of.
2: Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was fun.
0: We want to thank Greg Grossmeyer for taking the time to talk with us here at localcast.net and remind you to check out the show notes where we'll have a few links to the stuff that we discussed in the show. Thanks for listening.